You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? And that was an excerpt from Vinnie Paz singing Writings on Disobedience and Democracy. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. If you want to reach out to me and send me a message, go to youcantbeneutral.com where you'll find a link there to send a message. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. At youcantbeneutral.com, you'll also find all of the back episodes. This is the California Task Force to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans. Final report. Graphic content warning. This report contains discussions of racial discrimination, sexual assault, torture, lynching, and other forms of extreme violence. The report contains unedited historical quotations and photographs of white supremacist hatred, torture, lynching, autopsy, and other forms of graphic violence. This report is something in the neighborhood of 1,100 pages long. I most certainly will not be reading the whole thing. However, the uh, executive summary is within reach and we'll be able to cover that over a couple of episodes. Part 1. Recounting the Historical Atrocities 1. Introduction and Background The African-American story in the United States is marked by repeated failed promises to right the wrongs of the past, both distant and recent, and failure to acknowledge and take responsibility for the structural racism that perpetuated these harms. This report, crafted by the task force to study and develop reparation proposals for African-Americans, pursuant to its mandate under Assembly Bill 3121, of 2020, seeks to change this story with incontrovertible evidence of the harms requiring reparations and meaningful recommendations designed to redress them. The historical information and recommendations in this report are supported by extensive research and analysis, expert witness testimony, and testimony from those who have lived through the horrors and pursued the solutions that are addressed in this report. Taken together with the substantive analysis regarding international standards, local, state, federal, and international examples of reparations, methods for educating the public regarding the critical issues addressed herein, and a catalog of the racist laws and policies that cumulatively created this nation. This report is intended to satisfy the requirements of AB 3121 in an accessible and comprehensive manner that will facilitate progress towards, finally, enacting meaningful reparations for African Americans in California and the United States. In 1863, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, 
and in 1865, the states ratified the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which commanded that, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States. And that, of course, is the part of that amendment that abolished slavery. But that leaves out the part of that amendment that kept slavery going as a form of punishment for crime. In supporting the passage of the 13th Amendment, its co-author, Senator Lyman Trumbull of Illinois, said that, quote, It is perhaps difficult to draw the precise line to say where freedom ceases and slavery begins. The United States then experienced a 12-year period after the Civil War called Reconstruction, during which the federal government tried, with some success, to give newly freed African Americans access to basic civil rights. As just one example of the many ways in which this period reflected an expansion of rights, by 1868 more than 700,000 African American men were registered to vote in the former Confederate states. These advancements came to an abrupt end after the presidential election of 1876, when federal political leaders reached a compromise, which resulted in the withdrawal of federal troops from key locations in the South, effectively ending Reconstruction. Later in 1883, the United States Supreme Court interpreted the 13th Amendment as empowering Congress, quote, to pass all laws necessary and proper for abolishing all badges and incidents of slavery in the United States. However, other than during Reconstruction, instead of abiding by the Supreme Court's and the Constitution's mandates to abolish badges and incidents of slavery, the United States federal, state, and local governments, including California, perpetuated and created new iterations of these badges and incidents. The resulting harms have been innumerable and have snowballed over generations. In 2020, through the enactment of Assembly Bill No. 3121, California began the process of addressing its role in accommodating and facilitating slavery, perpetuating the vestiges of enslavement, propagating state-sanctioned discrimination, and tolerating persistent systemic structures of discrimination on living African Americans across its systems of government at the local and state level. AB 3121 acknowledged that as a result of this historic and continued discrimination, African Americans in California, especially those whose lineage can be traced to an enslaved person, continue to suffer economic, educational, and health hardships that have prevented them as a people from achieving equality. AB 3121 established a task force to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans, with a special consideration for African Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States, and directed the task force to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans, taking into account a. The institution of slavery, including the federal and state governments that constitutionally and statutorily supported the institution of slavery. b. The legal and factual discrimination against freed slaves and their descendants from the end of the Civil War to the present, including economic, political, educational, and social discrimination. c. 
the lingering negative effects of the institution of slavery on living African Americans and on society in California and the United States. D. How instructional resources and technologies deny the inhumanity of slavery and the crime against humanity committed against the people of African descent in California and the United States. E. The role of Northern complicity in Southern-based institution of slavery and F. The direct benefits to societal institutions, public and private, including higher education, corporate, religious, and associational. AB 3121 also required the task force to recommend appropriate ways to educate the California public of the task force's findings and submit to the legislature a report of its work. This is the task force's final report incorporating and updating the contents of an interim report issued in June 2022. Part 1 of this report summarizes the harms caused by slavery and the lingering negative effects of the institution of slavery on descendants of persons enslaved in the United States and, more broadly, on living African Americans and on society in California and the United States. So thoroughly have the effects of slavery infected every aspect of American society over the last 400 years that it is nearly impossible to identify every badge and incident of slavery, include every piece of evidence, and describe every harm done to African Americans, and particularly to freed slaves and their descendants. In order to address this practical reality, chapters 1 to 13 describe a sample of government actions and the compounding harms that have resulted, organized into specific areas of systemic discrimination. In order to maintain slavery, government actors adopted white supremacist beliefs and passed laws to create a racial hierarchy and control enslaved and free African Americans. After the end of slavery, although the federal constitution recognized African Americans as citizens on paper, the government failed to give them the full rights of citizenship and failed to protect African Americans from widespread terror and violence, along with the dereliction of its duty to protect its African American citizens. Direct federal, state, and local government actions continued to enforce the racist lies created to justify slavery. These laws and government-supported cultural beliefs have since formed the foundation of innumerable modern laws, policies, and practices across the nation. Today, 160 years after the abolition of slavery, its badges and incidents remained embedded in the political, legal, health, financial, educational, cultural, environmental, social, and economic systems of the United States of America. Racist, casteist, untrue, and harmful stereotypes created to support slavery continue to physically and mentally harm African Americans today. Without a remedy specifically targeted to dismantle our country's racist foundations and heal the injuries inflicted by colonial and American governments, the badges and incidents of slavery will continue to harm African Americans in almost all aspects of American life. Part 2 of this report discusses international standards for remedying the wrongs and injuries discussed in Part 1. This well-established framework has guided the task force in the formulation of its recommendations so that they comport with the five elements of reparations as set by the international standards. 
restitution, compensation, rehabilitation, satisfaction, and non-repetition. Part 2 also provides examples of prior international and domestic efforts to provide reparations for human rights violations, such as apartheid, incarceration, and forced sterilization. In keeping with the legal framework for reparations, Part 3 discusses the required components of a formal apology and recommends how the state of California should offer a formal apology on behalf of the people of California for the perpetration of gross human rights violations and crimes against humanity against African enslaved people and their descendants. In Parts 4 and 5, the task force recommends appropriate remedies in consideration of the task force's findings, including a how any form of compensation to African Americans with a special consideration for African Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the U.S. should be calculated. b. What form of compensation should be awarded, through what instrumentalities, and who should be eligible for such compensation? and c. Whether any other forms of rehabilitation or restitution to African descendants are warranted, and what form and scope those measures should take. The latter includes recommendations that the legislature enact a range of policies needed to guarantee restitution, compensation, rehabilitation, satisfaction, and non-repetition. Part 6 of the report contains a summary of the task force's findings and recommendations regarding implementation of the California Racial Justice Act. And Part 7 summarizes findings from community engagement and community input regarding reparations and the work of the task force. Part 8 recommends appropriate ways to educate the California public about the task force's findings and the legacy of enslavement and legal discrimination in California. Finally, Part 9 contains a compendium of California laws and policies that have had significant impact in the development of the state's and nation's unjust legal systems including those that have subjugated and continue to disproportionately and negatively affect African Americans as a group and perpetuate the lingering material and psychosocial effects of slavery. Taken together, the components of this report are not only intended to satisfy the requirements the legislature set out in AB 3121, but also to serve as a blueprint for other states and, eventually, the federal government when they perform the critical task of atoning for this nation's victimization of African Americans, especially those who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. While California's first-in-the-nation effort is an important step, and the task force eagerly anticipates the legislature's enactment of the recommendations contained herein, this national shame can ultimately be comprehensively redressed only through national reparations. AB 3121 authorized the task force to hold public hearings to pursue its mission. In order to inform the contents of this report, the task force held 16 public meetings during which it considered public comments, expert and personal witness testimony, in addition to considering the voluminous materials submitted to the task force via email from those unable to attend the meetings. In total, the task force heard over 48 hours of testimony from 133 witnesses, as well as over 28 hours of public comment in the course of its meetings, and received approximately 4,000 emails and 150 phone calls. When discussing issues as complex as race and reparations, 
precision is paramount. Precision helps ensure that the writers and the reader begin in the same place to arrive at the same understanding. As described later in this report, words have been weaponized throughout American history to dehumanize African Americans. Words also can be used to mend, to acknowledge, to respect, and to uplift. To that end, this report defines and adopts the following terms throughout its pages. The N-word. The word, quote, nigger, has been used for centuries to dehumanize African Americans. The terms, quote, Negro, and, quote, colored person, as opposed to, quote, person of color, although adopted by African American communities for periods of time, have since been recognized as derogatory terms. When quoting historical documents, this report will quote these words, not to condone the words or their vicious meanings, but to present them in the context in which these slurs were used. The California legislature enacted AB 3121, recognizing that the lasting wounds of enslavement and discrimination cannot begin to mend until those wounds are first addressed. In that same spirit, this report quotes these terms, recognizing that reparations or any other answer to racism cannot be complete until this report squarely faces the horrors of enslavement and the systemic discrimination that followed and persists today. White Supremacy White supremacy is a system of belief and power that white people are superior to other races. This report confronts the idea of white supremacy and the various forms that it takes. When discussing the concept of white supremacy, the report uses the term to refer to two concepts. First, this report uses the terms, quote, white supremacy, or, quote, white supremacists, to identify groups or individuals who believe that white people are superior to people of other races. When used this way, white supremacy describes an individual prejudice. Examples of white supremacist groups including groups that exist to this day, include, for example, the Ku Klux Klan. Second, this report uses the term, quote, white supremacy in the American context to describe the racist premise upon which social and legal rules and practices are formed with the intention of discriminating or enacting violence against African Americans, among other marginalized groups. This report also uses it to describe cultural images and stereotypes that reinforce prejudices against African Americans and others. When used this way, white supremacy describes forms of racism that extend beyond individuals or organizations, a form of racism often described as structural or systemic racism. As this report demonstrates, the fundamental political, social, and economic system of our country negatively impacts African Americans regardless of the intent of any one person to be racist. This report does not use the term, quote, white supremacy to describe white people as a group, white Americans, or white Californians. Not all white people are white supremacists. Anyone regardless of race, with or without intent, consciously or unconsciously, can engage in acts of white supremacy or be part of a racist system. A racist system harms all who live in it, 
even those who may have historically reaped the benefits of the system. Throughout the report, we use words that center the people discussed. Rather than refer to, quote, slaves, this report refers to, quote, enslaved persons. Most historians now refer to enslaved persons instead of slaves, because the term slave reduces the enslaved person to an object. Instead, historians use enslaved persons to grant agency and recognition to the enslaved individual and to remind us about the violence and inhumanity of slavery. For similar reasons, this report refers to, quote, enslavers rather than, quote, owners or, quote, masters. The words master or owner suggest a false sense of natural authority and suggest that the enslaved person is less capable than the enslaver. It also hides the fact that these individuals actively chose to enslave other human beings who are, as they were then, entitled to the same human rights as themselves. Instead of, quote, fugitive, this report refers to, quote, freedom seekers. When describing enslaved persons or other people seeking to escape enslavement and other forms of captivity. The term fugitive was commonly used with laws such as the Fugitive Slave Laws of 1793 and 1850, passed by Congress, which used the term to reinforce the system of enslavement and criminalize those who sought freedom from it. Rather than refer to, quote, felon or, quote, ex-offender, this report uses terms such as formerly incarcerated and, quote, returning citizen. Similarly, this report uses terms such as, quote, person in prison or, quote, incarcerated person rather than, quote, inmates. Like the term fugitive, the terms felon, ex-offender, and inmate have stigmatized people who are or have once been in jail or prison. By labeling people as nothing more than their criminal justice status, these words deny people their full personhood and reinforce a stigma that prevents people from fully participating in society. Instead of referring to people without homes as, quote, the homeless, this report uses terms such as, quote, unhoused people or, quote, people experiencing homelessness. This follows the practice of the Associated Press Style Guide, which recognized that the phrase, quote, the homeless dehumanizes people by collectively reducing them to a label based on housing status rather than their status as people. African-American. The task force voted to generally use, quote, African-American rather than, quote, black or, quote, black American when discussing racial classifications. This term includes the descendants of enslaved people who were abducted from their African homelands by force to be enslaved in North America. This report uses African American instead of black to refer to such persons, unless black is in quotation or their source cited or data being relied upon in the text exclusively uses black. Descendant The task force voted that the eligibility for monetary reparations should be limited to those who are able to establish that they are a lineal descendant of an African-American chattel enslaved person or of a free African-American person living in the United States prior to the end of the 19th century. When this report refers to, quote, descendants, 
It refers to that group of eligible people as defined by the task force in that vote. Though the report uses person-centered terms, the report may sometimes quote historical documents or statements that do not. This report presents these quotations unaltered to present them unfiltered and to provide historical context. In using person-centered words, this report recognizes that words alone may not cure the wounds that people have suffered. While words may not fix the systems they describe, this report uses these words recognizing that they are the beginning, not the end, of what must be done to redress racism, past and present. 2. Enslavement Nationally America's wealth was built by the forced labor of trafficked African peoples and their descendants who were bought and sold as commodities. American government at all levels allowed or participated in exploiting, abusing, terrorizing, and murdering people of African descent so that mostly white Americans could profit from their enslavement. After the War of Independence, the United States built one of the largest and most profitable enslaved labor economies in the world. The federal government politically and financially supported enslavement. The United States adopted a national constitution that protected slavery and gave pro-slavery white Americans outsized political power in the federal government. Half of the nation's pre-Civil War presidents enslaved African Americans while in office. And throughout American history, more than 1,800 congressmen from 40 states once enslaved African Americans. By 1861, almost 2% of the entire budget of the United States went to pay for expenses related to enslavement, including enforcing fugitive slave laws. Enslavers made more than $159 million between 1820 and 1860, by trafficking African Americans within the U.S. Charles Ball, an enslaved man who was bought by slave traffickers in Maryland and forced to march to South Carolina, later remembered, quote, I seriously meditated on self-destruction, and had I been at liberty to get a rope, I believe I should have hanged myself at Lancaster. I had now no hope of ever again seeing my wife and children or of revisiting the scenes of my youth. Historians have argued that many of today's financial accounting and management practices developed among enslavers in the South and the Caribbean. In order to continually increase production and profits, enslavers regularly staged public beatings and other violent acts and maintained deplorable living conditions. Historians have also found evidence that enslavers raped and impregnated enslaved women and girls and profited from this sexual violence by owning and selling their own children. President Thomas Jefferson, who enslaved four of his own children, wrote that the, quote, labor of a breeding enslaved woman, unquote, who births a child every two years is as profitable as the best enslaved worker on the farm. In the census of 1860, the last census taken before the Civil War, of the about 12 million people living in the 15 slaveholding states, almost 4 million were enslaved. In order to terrorize and force this enormous population to work without pay, the colonial and American governments created a different type of slavery. 
Unlike slavery in some other locations, slavery in America was based on the idea that race was the sole basis for lifelong enslavement, that children were enslaved from birth, and that people of African descent were naturally destined to be enslaved. Colonists in North America claimed and passed laws to maintain a false racial hierarchy where white people were naturally superior. Colonial laws effectively made it legal for enslavers to kill the people they enslaved. In some states, free and enslaved African Americans could not vote or hold political office. Enslaved people could not resist a white person, leave a plantation without permission, or gather in large groups away from plantations. After the War of Independence, the American government continued to pass laws to maintain this false racial hierarchy, which treated all African Americans as less than human. After the Civil War, the federal government failed to meaningfully protect the rights and lives of African Americans. When Andrew Johnson became president after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, he proclaimed in 1866, quote, This is a country for white men, and by God, as long as I am president, it shall be a government for white men. The slave codes were reborn as the black codes in Jim Crow laws segregating African Americans and white Americans in every aspect of life. Although many of these laws were most prominent in the U.S. South, they reflected a national desire to reinforce racial hierarchy based in white supremacy. The American colonial slave codes created a new type of slavery that was different from the slavery which existed in pre-modern times. Babies were enslaved at birth for their entire lives and for the entire lives of their children and their children's children. These laws denied political, legal, and social rights to free and enslaved black people alike in order to more easily control enslaved people. These laws divided white people from black people by making interracial marriage a crime. Some of these laws survived well into the 20th century. The Supreme Court only declared that outlawing interracial marriage was unconstitutional in 1967. California Although California technically entered the Union in 1850 as a free state, its early state government supported slavery. Pro-slavery white Southerners held a great deal of power in the state legislature, the state court system, and among California's representatives in the U.S. Congress. Some scholars estimate that up to 1,500 enslaved African Americans lived in California in 1852. Enslaved people trafficked to California often worked under dangerous conditions, lived in unclean environments, and faced brutal violence. In 1852, California passed and enforced a fugitive slave law that made California a more pro-slavery state than most other free states. California also outlawed non-white people from testifying in any court case involving white people. California did not ratify the 14th Amendment, which protected the equal rights of all citizens, until 1959, and did not ratify the 15th Amendment, which prohibited states from denying a person's right to vote on the basis of race, until 1962. 3. Racial Terror Nationally After slavery, white Americans, sometimes aided by the government, maintained the badges of slavery 
by carrying out violence and intimidation against African Americans for decades. Racial terror pervaded every aspect of post-slavery life and prevented African Americans from building the same wealth and political influence as white Americans. African Americans faced threats of violence when they tried to vote, when they tried to buy homes in white neighborhoods, when they tried to swim in public pools, and when they tried to assert equal rights through the courts or in legislation. White mobs bombed, murdered, and destroyed entire towns. Federal, state, and local governments ignored the violence, failed to prosecute offenders, or participated in the violence themselves. Racial terror takes direct forms such as physical assault, threats of injury, and destruction of property. It also inflicts psychological trauma on those who witness the harm and injury. Many African Americans were traumatized from surviving mass violence and by the constant terror of living in the U.S. South. Lynchings in the American South were not isolated hate crimes committed by rogue vigilantes, but part of a systematic campaign of terror to enforce the racial hierarchy. Racial terror targeted at successful African Americans has contributed to the present wealth gap between African Americans and white Americans. While lynching and mob murders are no longer socially acceptable, scholars have argued that its modern equivalents continue to haunt African Americans today in the form of extrajudicial killings by the police and vigilantes. Racial terror remains a tool for other forms of discrimination and control of African Americans, from redlining and segregated schools to disparate health care and denial of bank loans. California. Supported by their state and local governments, Californians also terrorized and murdered African Americans in California. The Ku Klux Klan, KKK, established chapters all over the state in the 1920s. During that time, California sometimes held more KKK events per year than even Mississippi or Louisiana. Many of California's KKK members were prominent individuals who held positions in civic leadership and police departments. For example, in Los Angeles in the 1920s, numerous prominent residents and city government officials were KKK members or had KKK ties, including the mayor, district attorneys, and police officers. Violence against African-American homeowners in California peaked in the 1940s as more African-Americans bought or attempted to buy homes in white neighborhoods across California. Today, police violence against and extrajudicial killings of African-Americans occur in California in the same manner as they do in the rest of the country. 4. Political Disenfranchisement Nationally, African-Americans have pursued equal political participation since before the Civil War, but the federal, state, and local governments of the United States have suppressed and continue to suppress African-American votes and political power. After the Civil War, the United States protected the voting rights of African-Americans on paper, but not in reality. During the 12-year period after the Civil War, called Reconstruction, the federal government tried to give newly freed African-Americans access to basic civil rights, and by 1868 more than 700,000 black men were registered to vote in the South. During Reconstruction, over 1,400 African-Americans held federal, state, or local office, and more than 600 served in state assemblies. 
However, progress was short-lived. During the contested presidential election of 1876, Republicans and Democrats agreed to withdraw federal troops from key locations in the U.S. South, effectively ending Reconstruction. Southern states then willfully ignored the voting protections in the U.S. Constitution and passed literacy tests, poll taxes, challenger laws, grandfather clauses, and other devices to prevent African Americans from voting. States also barred African Americans from serving on juries. This targeted government action stripped African Americans of the political power they gained during Reconstruction. For example, in 1867, African American turnout was 90% in Virginia. After Virginia's voter suppression laws took effect, the number of African American voters dropped from 147,000 to 21,000. During Reconstruction, 16 African American men held seats in Congress. From 1901 until the 1970s, not a single African American served in Congress. These government actions returned white supremacists to power in local, state, and federal government. Historians have argued that racist lawmakers elected from the southern states blocked hundreds of federal civil rights laws and rewrote many of the country's most important pieces of legislation to exclude or discriminate against African Americans. For example, the New Deal, a series of federal laws and policies designed to pull America out of the Great Depression, created the modern white middle class and many of the programs that Americans depend upon today, such as Social Security. But the New Deal excluded African Americans from many of its benefits. Historians have argued that Southern lawmakers ensured that the GI Bill was administered by states instead of the federal government to guarantee that states could direct its funds mostly to white veterans. Similarly, in order to secure the support of white Southern lawmakers, Congress included segregation clauses or rejected anti-discrimination clauses in the Hill-Burton Act of 1946, which paid for our modern health care infrastructure, and in the Housing Act of 1949, which helped white Americans buy single-family homes. These federal legislative decisions perpetuated the racial hierarchy, which continues today. California California also passed and enforced laws to prevent African Americans from accumulating political power. California's law prohibiting non-white witnesses from testifying against white Californians protected white defendants from justice. The California Supreme Court warned that allowing any non-white person to testify, quote, would admit them to all the equal rights of citizenship, and we might soon see them at the polls, in the jury box, upon the bench, and in our legislative halls. California did not allow African American men to vote until 1879. The state also passed many of the voter suppression laws that were used in the South. California prohibited individuals convicted of felonies from voting, added a poll tax, and put in place a literacy test. 5. Housing Segregation Nationally America's racial hierarchy was the foundation of a system of segregation in the United States after the Civil War. The aim of segregation was not only to separate, but also to force African Americans to live in worse conditions in nearly every aspect of life. 
Government actors working with private individuals actively segregated America into African-American and white neighborhoods. Although the system of segregation was called Jim Crow in the South, it existed by less obvious yet effective means throughout the entire country, including in California. During enslavement, about 90% of African-Americans were forced to live in the South. Immediately after the Civil War, the country was racially and geographically configured in ways that were different from the way it is segregated today. Throughout the 20th century, American federal, state, and local municipal governments expanded and solidified segregation efforts through zoning ordinances, slum clearance policies, construction of parks and freeways through the middle of African-American neighborhoods, and public housing siting decisions. Courts enforced racially restrictive covenants and prevented homes from being sold to African-Americans until the late 1940s. The federal government used redlining to deny African-Americans equal access to the capital needed to buy a single-family home at the same time that it subsidized white Americans' efforts to own the same type of home. As President Herbert Hoover stated in 1931, single-family homes were, quote, expressions of racial longing, and, quote, that our people should live in their own home is a sentiment deep in the heart of our race. The passage of the Fair Housing Act in 1868 outlawed housing discrimination, but did not fix the structures put in place by 100 years of discriminatory government policies. Residential segregation continues today. The average urban African-American person in 1890 lived in a neighborhood that was only 27% African-American. In 2019, America is as segregated as it was in the 1940s with the average urban African-American living in a neighborhood that is 44% African-American. Better jobs, tax dollars, municipal services, healthy environments, good schools, access to health care, and grocery stores have followed white residents to the suburbs, leaving concentrated poverty, underfunded schools, collapsing infrastructure, polluted water and air, crime and food deserts in segregated inner-city neighborhoods. California. In California, the federal, state, and local governments created segregation through redlining, zoning ordinances, school and highway siting decisions, and discriminatory federal mortgage policy. California's, quote, sundown towns, like most of the suburbs of Los Angeles and San Francisco, prohibited African Americans from living in towns throughout the state. The federal government financed many whites-only neighborhoods throughout the state, the Federal Homeowners Loan Corporation maps used in redlining described many California neighborhoods in racially discriminatory terms. For example, in San Diego, there were, quote, servants areas of La Jolla and several areas, quote, restricted to the Caucasian race. During World War II, the federal government paid to build segregated housing for defense workers in Northern California. Housing for white workers was more likely to be better constructed and permanent. While white workers lived in rooms paid for by the federal government, African-American war workers lived in cardboard shacks, barns, tents, or open fields. Racially restrictive covenants, which were clauses in the property deeds that usually allowed only white residents to live on the property, described in the deed, were commonplace and California courts enforced them till at least the 1940s. 
Numerous neighborhoods around the state rezoned African-American neighborhoods for industrial use to keep out white residents, or adopted zoning ordinances to ban apartment buildings to try and keep out African-American residents. State agencies demolished thriving African-American neighborhoods in the name of urban renewal and park construction. Operating under a state law for urban redevelopment, the city of San Francisco declared that the Western Addition, a predominantly African-American neighborhood, was blighted and destroyed the Fillmore, San-Francisco's most prominent African-American neighborhood and business district. In doing so, the city of San Francisco closed 883 businesses, displaced 4,729 households, destroyed 2,500 Victorian homes, and damaged the lives of nearly 20,000 people. It then left the land empty for many years. 6. Separate and Unequal Education Nationally Through much of American history, enslavers and the white political ruling class in America falsely believed it was in their best interest to deny education to African Americans in order to dominate and control them. Enslaving states denied education to nearly all enslaved people, while the North and Midwest segregated their schools and limited or denied education access to freed African Americans. After slavery, southern states maintained the racial hierarchy by legally segregating African American and white children, and white-controlled legislatures funded African American public schools far less than white public schools. In 1889, an Alabama state legislator stated, quote, Education would spoil a good plow hand. African-American teachers received lower wages, and African-American children received fewer months of schooling per year and fewer years of schooling per lifetime than white children. Contrary to what most Americans are taught, the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark 1954 case, Brown v. Board of Education, which established that racial segregation in public schools is unconstitutional, did not mark the end of segregation. After Brown v. Board, many white people and white-dominated school boards throughout the country actively resisted integration. In the South, segregation was still in place throughout the early 1970s due to massive resistance by white communities. In the rest of the country, including California, education segregation occurred when government supported residential segregation coupled with school assignments and citing policies. Because children attended the schools in their neighborhood and school financing was tied to property taxes, most African American children attended segregated schools with less funding and resources than schools attended by white children. In 1974, the U.S. Supreme Court allowed this type of school segregation to continue in schools if it reflected residential segregation patterns between the city and the suburbs. In part as a result of this decision and other U.S. Supreme Court decisions that followed, many public schools in the United States never integrated in the first place or were integrated and subsequently resegregated. California in 1874, the California Supreme Court ruled that segregation in the state's public schools was legal, a decision that predated the U.S. Supreme Court's infamous separate but equal case, Plessy v. Ferguson, by 22 years. 
1966, as the South was in the process of desegregating, 85% of African-American students in California attended predominantly minority schools, and only 12% of African-American students and 39% of white students attended racially balanced schools. Like in the South, white Californians fought desegregation and, in a number of school districts, courts had to order districts to desegregate. Any progress attained through court-enforced desegregation was short-lived. Throughout the mid to late 1970s, courts overturned, limited, or ignored desegregation orders in many California districts, as the U.S. Supreme Court and Congress limited methods to integrate schools. In 1979, California passed Proposition 1, which further limited desegregation efforts tied to busing. In the vast majority of California school districts, schools either resegregated or were never integrated, so segregated schooling persists today. California is the sixth most segregated state in the country for African American students. In California's highly segregated schools, Schools mostly attended by white and Asian children received more funding and resources than schools mostly attended by African American and Latino children. 7. Racism in Environment and Infrastructure Nationally Due to residential segregation, African Americans have lived in poor quality housing throughout American history, exposing them to disproportionate amounts of lead poisoning and increasing their risks of infectious disease. Segregated African-American neighborhoods have more exposure to hazardous waste, oil and gas production, and automobile and diesel fumes, and are more likely to have inadequate public services like sewage lines and water pipes. African-Americans are more vulnerable than white Americans to the dangerous effects of extreme weather patterns like heat waves worsened by the effects of climate change. California National patterns are replicated in California. African Americans in California are more likely than white Californians to live in overcrowded housing and near hazardous waste. African American neighborhoods are more likely to lack tree canopy and suffer from the consequences of water and air pollution. For instance, African American neighborhoods in the San Joaquin Valley were historically denied access to clean water. 8. Pathologizing the African-American Family Nationally Government policies and practices have destroyed African-American families throughout American history. After the Civil War, Southern state governments re-enslaved children by making them, quote, apprentices and forcing them to labor for white Americans, who were sometimes their former enslavers. In the past century, both financial assistance and child welfare systems have based decisions on racist beliefs about African Americans, which continue to operate as badges of slavery. Government-issued financial assistance has excluded African Americans from receiving benefits. In the early 1900s, state governments made support payments every month to low-income single mothers to assist them with the expenses incurred while raising children. African-American families were generally excluded despite their greater need. Scholars have found that racial discrimination exists at every stage of the child welfare process. 
comparing equally poor African-American and white families. Studies have found that even with families considered to be at equal risk for future abuse, state agencies are more likely to remove African-American children from their families than remove white children from their families. As of 2019, African-American children make up 14% of American children, but 23% of children in foster care. Studies have shown that this is likely not because African-American parents mistreat their children more often, but rather due to poverty and racist systems. Meanwhile, the criminal and juvenile justice systems have intensified these harms to African-American families by imprisoning large numbers of African-American youth and separating African-American families. California. Trends in California match those in the rest of the country. Recent California Attorney General investigations have found several school districts that punished African-American students at higher rates than students of other races. A 2015 study ranked California among the five worst states in foster care racial disparities. African-American children in California make up approximately 22% of the foster population, while making up only 6% of the general child population, a disparity far higher than the disparity in national percentages. Some counties in California, both urban and rural, have much higher disparities compared to the statewide average. In San Francisco County, which is largely urban and has around 800,000 residents, the percentage of African-American children in foster care in 2018 was over 25 times the rate of white children. 9. Control over creative, cultural, and intellectual life. Nationally. During slavery, state governments controlled and dictated the forms and content of African-American artistic and cultural production. After the Civil War, governments and politicians embraced minstrelsy, which was the popular racist and stereotypical depiction of African Americans through song, dance, and film. Federal and state governments failed to protect African American artists, culture makers, and media makers from discrimination and simultaneously promoted discriminatory narratives. Federal and state governments allowed white Americans to steal African American art and culture with impunity, depriving African American creators of valuable copyright and patent protections. State governments denied African-American entrepreneurs and culture makers access to leisure sites, business licenses, and funding for leisure activities. State governments memorialized the Confederacy as just and heroic through monument building while suppressing the nation's history of racism and slavery. States censored cinematic depictions of discrimination against and integration of African-Americans into white society. California. In California, city governments decimated thriving African-American neighborhoods with vibrant artistic communities like the Fillmore in San Francisco. Local governments in California have discriminated against, punished, and penalized African-American students for their fashion, hairstyle, and appearance. State-funded California museums have excluded African-American art from their institutions. California has criminalized African-American rap artists as California courts have allowed rap lyrics to be used as evidence related to street gang activity. California has also been home to numerous racist monuments and memorials for centuries. 10. Stolen Labor and Hindered Opportunity 
nationally. During slavery, the labor of enslaved African Americans built the infrastructure of the nation, filled the nation's coffers, and produced its main agricultural products for domestic consumption and export. Since then, federal, state, and local government actions directly segregated and discriminated against African Americans. In 1913, President Woodrow Wilson officially segregated much of the federal workforce. While African Americans have consistently served in the military since the very beginning of the country, the military has historically paid African American soldiers less than white soldiers and often deemed African Americans unfit for service until the military needed them to fight. Federal laws have also protected white workers while denying the same protections to African American workers, setting up and allowing private discrimination. Approximately 85% of all African American workers in the United States at the time were excluded from labor protections passed in the 1938 Fair Labor Standards Act. Protections like federal minimum wage, the maximum number of working hours before overtime pay is required, and limits on child labor. The act essentially outlawed child labor in industrial settings, where most white children worked at the time, and allowed child labor in agricultural and domestic work, where most African American children worked. Although federal and state laws like the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the California Fair Employment Act, Employment and Housing Act of 1959 prohibit discrimination, enforcement is slow and spotty. Federal and state policies like affirmative action produced mixed results and were short-lived. African Americans continue to face employment discrimination today. California. Several California cities did not hire African American workers until the 1940s, and certain public sectors continued to avoid hiring African American workers even in 1970. The San Francisco Fire Department, for example, had no African-American firefighters before 1955, and by 1970, when African-American residents made up 14% of the city's population, only four of the department's 1,800 uniformed firefighters were African-American. During the New Deal, several California cities invoked city ordinances to prevent African-American federal workers from working within their cities. Labor unions excluded African-American workers in California. Today, by some measures, two of California's major industries, Hollywood and Silicon Valley, employ disproportionately fewer African-Americans. 11. An unjust legal system. Nationally. American government at all levels criminalized African-Americans for the purposes of social control and to maintain an economy based on exploited African-American labor. After the Civil War and throughout legal segregation, states passed numerous laws that criminalized African-Americans when they performed everyday tasks, like stepping into the same waiting rooms as white Americans at bus stations or walking into a park for white people. In the South until the 1940s, African-American men and boys were arrested on vagrancy charges or minor violations, fined and forced to pay off their fine in a new system of de facto enslavement called convict leasing. In the words of the Supreme Court of Virginia, they were, quote, slaves of the state. During the, quote, tough on crime and, quote, war on drugs era, Politicians continued to criminalize African Americans 
to win elections. President Richard Nixon's domestic policy advisor explained that by, quote, getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, the Nixon White House could disrupt those communities. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. The criminalization of African Americans is an enduring badge of slavery and has contributed to the over-policing of African American neighborhoods, the school-to-prison pipeline, the mass incarceration of African Americans, and other inequities in nearly every corner of the American legal system. It has also led to a rejection by police and mainstream media of accepting African Americans as victims. Law enforcement poorly investigates or ignores crimes against African American women. African American children, on average, remain missing longer and are more likely to be missing than non-African American children. The American criminal justice system overall physically harms, imprisons, and kills African Americans more than any other racial groups relative to their percentage of the population. While constitutional amendments and federal civil rights laws have tried to remedy these injustices, scholars have argued that the U.S. criminal justice system is a new iteration of legal segregation. California. Like the rest of the country, California police stop, shoot, kill, and imprison more African Americans than their share of the population. Police officers reported ultimately taking no action during a stop most frequently when stopping a person they perceived to be African American, suggesting there may have been no legitimate basis for the stop. Additionally, a 2020 study showed that racial discrimination is a, quote, ever-present feature of jury selection in California. The lingering effects of California's punitive criminal justice policies, such as the state's three strikes law, have resulted in large numbers of African Americans in prisons and jails. 12. Mental and Physical Harm and Neglect Nationally the government actions described in this report have had a devastating effect on the health of African Americans. Compared to white Americans, African Americans live shorter lives and are more likely to suffer and die from almost all diseases and medical conditions than white Americans. When they are hospitalized, African American patients with heart disease receive older, cheaper, and more conservative treatments than their white counterparts. Researchers have found that by some measures, this health gap has grown and cannot be explained by poverty alone, as middle and upper class African Americans also manifest high rates of chronic illness and disability. Researchers have linked these health outcomes in part to African Americans' unrelenting experience of racism in our society. Research suggests that race-related stress may have a greater impact on health among African Americans than diet, exercise, smoking, or income status. In addition to physical harm, African Americans experience anger, anxiety, paranoia, helplessness, hopelessness, frustration, resentment, fear, lowered self-esteem, and lower levels of psychological functioning as a result of racism. These feelings can profoundly undermine African American children's emotional and physical well-being and their academic success. California these measures are similar in California. The life expectancy of an average African-American Californian was 75.1 years, six years shorter than the state average. African-American babies are more likely to die in infancy, and African-American mothers giving birth die at a rate 
almost four times higher than the average Californian mother. Compared with white Californians, African-American Californians are more likely to have diabetes, die from cancer, or be hospitalized for heart disease. African-American Californians suffer from high rates of serious psychological distress, depression, suicidal ideation, and other mental health issues. Unmet mental health needs are higher among African-American Californians as compared with white Californians, including lack of access to mental health care and substance abuse services. African-American Californians have the highest rates of attempted suicide among all racial groups. 13. The Wealth Gap Nationally as described in further detail throughout this report, government policies perpetuating badges of slavery have helped white Americans accumulate wealth while erecting barriers which prevented African Americans from doing the same. Federal and California homesteading acts essentially gave away hundreds of millions of acres of land almost for free, mostly to white families. Today, as many as 46 million of their living descendants approximately one quarter of the adult population of the United States reaped the wealth benefits of these laws. In the 1930s and 1940s, the federal government created programs that subsidized low-cost loans, which allowed millions of average white Americans to own their homes for the first time. Of the $120 billion worth of new housing subsidized between 1934 and 1962, less than 2% went to non-white families. Other bedrocks of the American middle class, like Social Security and the GI Bill, also mostly excluded African Americans. The federal tax structure has in the past and continues today to discriminate against African Americans. These harms have compounded over generations, resulting in an enormous wealth gap that is the same today as it had been two years before the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964. In 2019, the median African-American household had a net worth of $24,100, 13% of the median net worth of white households at $188,200. This wealth gap persists regardless of education level and family structure and across all income levels. California. The wealth gap exists in similar ways in California. A 2014 study of the Los Angeles metro area found that the median value of liquid assets for native-born African-American households was $200, compared to $110,000 for white households. California's homestead laws similarly excluded African-Americans before 1900 because they required a homesteader to be white. Throughout the 20th century, federal, state, and local governments in California erected barriers to African-American homeownership and supported or directly prohibited African-Americans from living in suburban neighborhoods. Californians passed Proposition 209 in 1996, which prohibited the consideration of race in state contracting. One study has estimated that as a result of Proposition 209, minority and women-owned businesses have lost about $1 billion. Key Findings of Part 1 In order to maintain slavery, colonial and American governments adopted white supremacist beliefs and passed laws in order to maintain a system that stole the labor and intellect of people of African descent. 
The system was maintained by and financially benefited the entire United States of America and its territories. The system of white supremacy is a badge of slavery and continues to be embedded today in numerous American and Californian legal and social systems. Throughout American history, this system has been upheld by federal, state, and local laws and policies and by violence and terror. All over the country, but particularly in the South during the era of legal segregation, federal, state, and local governments directly engaged in, supported, or failed to protect African Americans from the violence and terror aimed to subjugate African Americans. These government actions and derelictions of duty caused compounding physical and psychological injury for generations. In California, racial violence against African Americans began during slavery, continued through the 1920s as groups like the Ku Klux Klan permeated local governments and police departments, and peaked after World War II as African Americans attempted to move into white neighborhoods. After the Civil War, African Americans briefly won political power during Reconstruction. Southern states responded by systematically stripping African Americans of their power to vote. Racist lawmakers elected from southern states blocked hundreds of federal civil rights laws and edited important legislation to exclude or discriminate against African Americans, harming African American Californians. Government actors working with private individuals actively segregated America into African American and white neighborhoods. In California, federal, state, and local governments created segregation where none had previously existed through discriminatory federal housing policies, zoning ordinances, school siting decisions, and discriminatory federal mortgage policies known as redlining. Funded by the federal government, the California state and local government also destroyed African American homes and communities through park and highway construction, urban renewal, and by other means. Enslavers denied education to enslaved people in order to control them. Throughout American history, African American students across the country and in California have attended schools with less funding and resources than white students. After slavery, southern states passed laws to prevent African American and white students from attending the same schools. Throughout the country, children went to the school in their neighborhoods, so education segregation was created by residential segregation. Many public schools in the United States never integrated in the first place or were integrated and then resegregated. Today, California is the sixth most segregated state in the country for African American students who attend schools with less funding and resources than white students. Due to residential segregation, African Americans compared to white Americans are more likely to live in worse quality housing and in polluted neighborhoods with inadequate infrastructure. African American Californians face similar harms. Government-issued financial assistance has historically excluded African Americans from receiving benefits. The current child welfare systems in the country and in California operate on harmful and false racial stereotypes of African Americans. This has resulted in extremely high rates of African American children removed from their families, even though African Americans' parents generally do not mistreat their children at higher rates than white parents. Federal and state governments, including California, fail to protect African American artists, culture makers, and media makers from discrimination and simultaneously promoted discriminatory narratives. 
State governments memorialize the Confederacy as just and heroic through monument building, while suppressing the nation's history of racism and slavery. Federal, state, and local government actions, including in California, have directly segregated and discriminated against African Americans at work. Federal and state policies like affirmative action produced mixed results and were short-lived. African Americans continue to face employment discrimination today in the country and in California. American government at all levels, including in California, have historically criminalized African Americans for the purposes of social control and to maintain an economy based on exploited African American labor. This criminalization is an enduring badge of slavery and has contributed to the over-policing of African American neighborhoods, the school-to-prison pipeline, the mass incarceration of African Americans, a refusal to accept African Americans as victims, and other inequities in nearly every corner of the American and Californian legal systems. As a result, the American and California criminal justice system physically harms, imprisons, and kills African Americans more than other racial groups relative to their percentage of the population. The government actions described in this report have had a devastating effect on the health of African Americans in the country and in California. Compared to white Americans, African Americans live shorter lives and are more likely to suffer and die from almost all diseases and medical conditions than white Americans. Researchers have linked these health outcomes in part to African Americans' unrelenting experience of racism. In addition to physical harm, African Americans experience psychological harm, which can profoundly undermine African American children's emotional and physical well-being and their academic success. Government laws and policies perpetuating badges of slavery have helped white Americans accumulate wealth while erecting barriers which prevented African Americans from doing the same. These harms compounded over generations, resulting in an enormous gap in wealth today between white Americans and African Americans in the nation and in California. And that concludes part one of the executive summary of the California Task Force to Study and Develop Reparation Proposals for African Americans final report. Next episode, we'll dive into part two. Remember, if you want to check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral and check out the future episodes uh, in front of this episode, go to youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. And you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And here are Dan and Claudia Zanes from the album Let Love Be Your Guide with the song Reparations is a Must. This is your moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. Hey, y'all, it's the 4th of July here in beautiful Baltimore, Maryland, and you're listening to Today with Dr. K. I'm Dr. K. Wise Whitehead, and here is one that we have been waiting for, a love song for this particular day. Now, you can say that many of us have been singing something like this for a very long time. Reparations is a must. <laughs> I know that's right. Ooh. 
See how the flags are flying Reparations is a must While the old ways are quickly dying Reparations is a must And the fireworks in the night sky Tomorrow's poison dust Our parades across the nation Ooh, reparations is a must The statues and the glory Reparations is a must The story behind the story Reparations is a must All the children in their classrooms And the teachers they're asked to trust Can write it on the whiteboard Reparations is a must and byways Reparations is a must Through all the crowds that block the highways Reparations is a must And the good words from the news team Work it out or bust And the wind that shakes the barley said Ooh, Reparations is a must Oh, oh, oh. Ooh, reparations is a must. Ooh, reparations is a must. 
Jesus. Amen.